Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of March 30th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about Kentucky's close call against Notre Dame, UConn's continued dominance, and other stories from the men's and women's NCAA basketball tournaments. We'll also discuss Abby Wambach, Hope Solo, and the U.S. women's national team as the Women's World Cup approaches. And almost two years after Jason Collins came out on the cover of Sports Illustrated, we'll assess the state of the openly gay athlete. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Not at the same time. No. Separately. And with us from New York and filling in for Mike Pesca this week is Kate Fagan. Hello, Kate. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've got to give your your uh, list of accomplishments here. You're a writer for ESPNW and ESPN.com, a panelist on ESPN's Around the Horn, and the author of the memoir The Reappearing Act. Uh, you're also one of the hosts of a new podcast for 538 called Hot Takedown. If you like this podcast, then you'll probably like that one. So check it out on iTunes or on 538.com. I think that about covers it, Kate. Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> it's not, that's that's not even close to it. Come on. You lived on the island of Corsica? Wow. Yeah. You interned <laughs> for the Conan that's, O'Brien show? That was more show? of an accomplishment from, from my dad playing basketball over there yeah. than for me yeah, as I was true. like four. True. <laughs> There's a line in there in, in one of your bios that says that your dad had a tryout with the Celtics, but he chose to go overseas instead to play. I, those, that's one of those stories is where he tells you that and you're not really <laughs> sure how accurate it is. 
She basically won 10 championships rings, but declined them all. He Uh, was like, I'm good. But I think he really did have a tryout with them. He had the opportunity to to be cut by them, Mm -hmm. which he knew was going to happen, or he had to accept a job overseas. And I think there was a a time element where it was like, if you go try out for the Celtics, you're going to be left without an overseas job. Mm -hmm. He's irrational. He's rational. (laughs) Yeah. Um, the, The bit of background research that I did was that you made 44 consecutive free throws when you were playing in Colorado. Um, so if this podcast comes down to foul shots, Stefan, it's either you or me are getting fouled. Yeah. They're not going to yeah. want to send Kate to the line. <laughs> and the thing about the 45th one, and I know this because my parents talk about it, the net was caught when I was taking that 45th one, you know? And usually no, the refs, that is the most distracting thing Usually the refs fix it, and then they didn't fix it, and then I missed. And, of course, that was 100% yeah. the reason I missed. And I, I'm all, I pointed out, I was like, wait, wait, wait. So... So they should. So you'd still be making the free throws. <laughs> the other team should foul you, but just screw screw up with the you know with, with the, the net, net beforehand. Yeah. Um, all simple right. fix. I should mention in our bonus segment for Slate Plus this week, uh, we'll mourn Kevin Durant's latest foot related setback and ponder the future of his hooves. <laughs> uh, leaning on the expertise of our panelists, one of whom had a stress fracture in her foot during her freshman college basketball season. See if you can guess which one of us that was. Um, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash plus and get access to this and other podcast bonus segments. Uh, you can get a free two-week trial, so you'll get this week's feet. Maybe next week you'll get arms, shoulders. Um, to find out about the body parts, start your free trial at slate.com slash plus. And one more thing before we get going, the final season of Mad Men, premiering this coming Sunday. You can watch it with Slate's TV Club for free. Join Julia John Swansburg, that's Julia Turner, uh, special guest from the Mad Men TV Club. Sunday, April 5th, Bell House in Brooklyn. Doors open at 9 for general admission, but Slate Plus members get early access at 8 for a special happy hour with preferred seating. And you're not really watching Mad Men if you haven't had a cocktail or two beforehand. Uh, the event is free, but all attendees must RSVP. To RSVP and get more information, go to slate.com slash madmen. All right, Stefan, some of the charm of college sports, the delightfulness, um, and the NCAA tournament in particular, not just college sports, is that the players are great, but imperfect, that they're not polished pros. They sometimes make mistakes. But So by that standard, uh, Kentucky, Notre Dame on Saturday night did not really live up to the usual charm of college sports. Kentucky did not um, miss in the last 11 minutes. They were like Cade Fagan with, without the net screwed up. <laughs> they just, they were nine for nine from the field. They made all their free throws. Uh, Notre Dame did fail to score um, on their last three possessions, but it's hard to blame them going against one of the best defenses in college basketball history. And they did score on 17 of their first 23 possessions of the second half. Um, this was one of the best games in uh, the tournament in years, I thought. Um, and Wisconsin-Arizona wasn't bad either. Those were two teams pushing themselves to greater heights, particularly Sam Decker. Um, it's kind of great competition, uh, making uh, the best players even better. Um, Kate, what did you think of those two games? Well, you know, earlier in the year, when it came to Kentucky, I thought for sure they were going to lose at least two games and struggle to manage all those talented players because I've never seen a college team be able to, at that age, with that much talent, be able to get those guys to 
buy into scoring fewer points and playing fewer minutes because there's so much talent. I thought for sure that they would run into some hurdles with that. Um, and then after watching dozens of their games, I realized that was just not going to be the case. And I've been pretty straightforward about the fact that I, I, from the last month, I'm like, they are going to win this tournament. That I put it at like 99.9. I know our 538 <laughs> bracket added at like 41%. Those guys are good. But I had it at 99. Um, and watching them against Notre Dame, I think you could take it two ways. You could say that Notre Dame revealed a way to beat this Kentucky team, but I just don't think that's the case. I kind of take it the other way, that Notre Dame gave Kentucky its best shot, played as good as we're going to see an opponent for Kentucky play, and Kentucky weathered that. Even when with six minutes left, with all that pressure, even the Kentucky players, Willie Cauley-Stein was like, I thought defeat was imminent. And then he kind of looked at the clock and he was like, you know, we got six minutes left. We, We can still do this. And so... I it was, it was an awesome college basketball game. I think anybody who says college basketball is broken, I don't buy into that. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm still with Kentucky. I don't I don't think this is a case where Kentucky now has revealed some sort of Achilles heel. I think that that's going to be the best shot that they take for the rest of this tournament. You know, Josh mentioned the flaws of college sports, and I think we've seen that in these games. Even though that game was about as as well played a college basketball game as you could ask for. It was fairly low scoring for those who have been complaining about low scoring. It was only the final score was 68-66. Um, you know, th- there have been flaws in all of these games. I mean, Kentucky has an incredible depth, which has masked some of the, the you know, when a team goes into a slump, they just bring other people in. They've, you know, they're incredibly deep. They've got seven footers that can play out at the top of the key. Um, they, they are an unbelievably unbelievable team. Notre Dame didn't really expose anything as much as it played terrifically well. But the reason I like seeing low-scoring games, well-played defensive games, mistakes made, I mean, in the Gonzaga-Duke game, two crucial missed layups late in the second half that would have kept Gonzaga tied or, or very close and given them a better chance to win that. You know, so, so for all of the conversation about the evils of the NCAA, the absence of payment of these players, the billions in revenue that is being generated off the backs of of these young athletes. I mean, the reality is that they are young athletes, and that helps reinforce our understanding of exactly who is playing these games when we see the kinds of problems or complaints magnified on this big stage. And having said that, you know, Louisville-Michigan State was a great game, too. I mean, these are not NBA games, and that's why I think we love them. So for everyone who's been complaining about college basketball, no, this is college basketball. Notre Dame-Kentucky was the brilliant exception. Yeah, you, you bring up a, a good point, and, and maybe one that I'm quite sensitive to, and that's somehow here in the U.S., all basketball is measured against the NBA. And that includes the WNBA and women's basketball, which has constantly battled this idea that it's it's supposed to be competing for you know talent and the way the game looks with what the how the NBA looks, and that's just not the case. And it's the same with college basketball. We need to stop thinking that like college basketball and women's basketball are supposed to look like the NBA looks, or they're supposed to be playing the same type of games because they're not. These are completely separate products. And yes, they're products like college basketball, NBA, women's basketball, vastly different products. Yeah. And at the same time, I totally agree with that. But when there are these moments of kind of 
NBA-esque brilliance, like you saw Carl Anthony Towns Mm -hmm. being unstoppable in the lane and Sam Decker just raining these three-pointers at the end of the game. You can't help but make that comparison and think, like, Towns is going to be the number one pick or Decker is a lottery pick. And, you know, those guys do kind of shine through because of that brilliance. Um, And I thought that a couple other people have said that, but at the end of the game, if you want to criticize... Notre Dame for anything, it did seem like they got a little bit away from the kind of offense that had scored on 17 of those first 23 possessions. And Jaron Grant, son of NBA player Harvey Grant, looked like he was trying to be Kobe Bryant a little bit. Um, You know, the only thing keeping that game from absolute transcendent, like Duke, Kentucky, all-time greatness is Jaron Grant not making that last shot, but maybe he shouldn't have been dominating the ball so much in the last minute and a half of that game, but hard to criticize too much in in such an amazing game. Yeah, Uh, or even really getting a good shot there in that last 20 seconds. It it just felt so forced. But I think, for me, the the separation with college basketball is obviously the coaches. I mean, they're the ones who are sticking around year after year as opposed to the players. So... It's such a system-oriented and necessarily it needs to be a system-oriented endeavor because of the one-and-dones and and the talent that is quickly coming through. There, So many college coaches have been like, this has to be my system, and and that's how I'm going to play it. And there was actually a very interesting story on on Grantland last week about how because if we start looking at college basketball as a product – and then we want to change the game and change the rules to make it a better selling product, then the NCA is implicitly acknowledging that it is a product and it's not amateurism. And so there's always that struggle between that. And so we always see in college basketball, you know, we have all these figureheads and these coaches and we talk about Izzo versus, you know, Patino and and Calipari and Krzyzewski. And it's like, it's all about the program and these young athletes fitting into the program as opposed to the star-driven NBA. All right, let's get back to Calipari in a minute, but I want to talk about UConn for a second, the women um, beat Texas in the Sweet 16, 105 to 54. And was it really that close? I don't know. <laughs> that might might understate, um, you know, the dominance so of the UConn no, women. The mercy rule in women's college basketball is 60 points, I understand, <laughs> in the tournament. Kate, I really it's like... It's called the UConn rule. <laughs> I really like the story that you wrote um, a couple weeks ago about the UConn women and the kind of swagger that they have and that you have to have to succeed in the program. And it made me think... Com- Comparing them to Kentucky, that is by far, you know, the Kentucky men, by far the most talented team in uh, Division I men's college basketball. And yet they were challenged and they were forced by this external force, namely the other team, to rise to the occasion and be their best. And with UConn, it seems like all of that driving force comes from inside the team. It comes from Coach Gino Oriema. It comes from the teammates. And it's not coming from their opponents. It, it that's absolutely correct. I actually the the impetus for writing that story, the swagger of UConn, was my own experience with UConn players, and this was back when it was Sue Bird and and Diana Tarazi back in like oh two, two thousand two. I worked a summer camp at UConn uh, for back to back weeks, and and one night we were playing pickup. And my team was just a hodgepodge of college players, but 
college players at significant programs. It was like Colorado, Wake Forest, Xavier, and Xavier at the time had just made the Elite Eight. And we were playing five UConn players, but but more more so their reserves. I think Tarazi was like overseas with USA Basketball. And so we're playing five on five, and it's getting late, and one of the UConn players had to leave for her night class. And so she had to go in the middle of the game, and it was left with we were left five on four, but there was tons of players around uh, waiting. And so the players on my team, we were looking around the sidelines for who was going to be their fifth, like who would they pull in for fifth. But it was going to be not a UConn player because they didn't have any UConn players left. And they just checked the ball. The UConn players checked the ball <laughs> with four. And, you know, that's not a thing that happens, you know, when you, you're you playing pickup at that college level because things are supposed to be so tight and so close that, like, of course you can't win with 20% less, 20% fewer. Um so I would that always stuck with me in the way, and they won. They won the game. They went with like a one-two-one, and and they won one hundred and five to fifty-one. <laughs> <laughs> and the point, I guess, the point is like I was that would never have happened at Colorado. Like if we had lost a player, we would be looking for five. We would be looking for our fifth, and we would have taken somebody from a different program. Um, no excuses, even if you have four players. <laughs> that's right. So uh, that is so what UConn is about. They have conditioned all of those players to have a level of swagger and confidence that no other program that I've ever seen has. And they only want to play with UConn players because they can trust that that player also has that, that same level of belief. And it's almost like they would rather have four UConn players who know exactly what the game plan is than four plus one who might get in the way of that game plan. And you see that it, they beat teams before they even step on the on the court. And it's not just the talent they have. It's also this swagger that they have just like coded into everybody's DNA. Well, the swagger is there, sure, but the talent doesn't hurt. And the fact that Gino Oriema has coached the team for so long, has established this reputation as the place to go if you are a top well, Simone Davis, she, her dream is to play, play for UConn. <laughs> yeah, it's not to play Major League Baseball. It's to play for Gino Auriemma. And I think there is a parallel that's evolving between Gino and UConn and Calipari, who's now in his, what, sixth season at Kentucky. Um, you know, in as much as the depth is ridiculous, the ability to recruit the players from the top 50 um, is unparalleled. The players probably, are almost recruiting you. Probably mm-hmm. in the you know in the history of college basketball, maybe since John Wooden in UCLA, in terms of sustained level of dominance and the ability to roll out um, top players at every position all the time. In women's basketball, though, there's so much less depth that you get 105 to 54 in the in the round of in the it was the Elite Eight, right? Round of sixteen. Round of 16. Yeah, yeah. Um, in women's college basketball, though, the depth is just isn't there. So you get one hundred and five to fifty four in the round of sixteen, which just doesn't happen in the men's game, which has led to complaints or arguments that look, women's basketball is just too top heavy. Sixty four teams in the tournament is absurd until you get to the final four, and maybe even you know when you get to the final four, we've got you know this year it was one two one two one two. And one against seven, UConn against Dayton in the Elite Eight. And the odds are that it's going to be one, 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 one in the final four top seeds all the way. Right. And it's not that much different on the men's side when you get down to the final four, although I, I totally agree that there's less parity on the women's side. But I will point out, and, and this point was, was made to me a couple weeks ago, 
we saw UCLA in the 60s and 70s win seven straight championships and completely dominate college basketball. And the interesting thing is, is that in the evolution of women's college basketball, the, the place they are in their evolution, having, what are we now, like 45 years or so of its existence, it's actually pretty spot on to where we were in the men's game when UCLA was dominating. And I think there's going to be that course correction as we see recruiting classes coming up, um, you know, like classes of like 2017 yeah. and 2018, which are chock full of talent sure. and deep enough that they're going to be able to spread out two teams, you know, in not where men's college basketball is. And I think is. a better parallel might be women's college soccer, where North Carolina dominated for the first two decades of right. its existence, and now there's tremendous parity. All right, last, exactly. last um, question on this topic for you, Kate. How do you evaluate um, Calipari and Oriema as coaches, given that they have the most talent? Like, it's pretty clear that Tom Izzo is unbelievable at his job, given um, how Michigan State just mm-hmm. seems to play better in the tournament, and and he doesn't have all the top recruits. And so as an outside observer, you can say, this guy's a great coach. But how do you evaluate um, the, um, you know, the coaches who do have the best players? I do think Tom Izzo has actually exploited that space where he's recruiting players that he knows he's going to keep for three or four years, and he gets the absolute best player who's going to be there three or four years, and that's a strategy in itself as opposed to programs that can go after one-and-dones or guys who are leaving after their sophomore year like Duke and Arizona um, and Kentucky. So that seems like another strategy, and, and Tom Izzo seems like he's at the top of his game when it comes to that strategy. But as far as Calipari and Ariama, I do think it's unfair when people knock them for, well, they have all the best talent because – the way Ariema has over the years created a lineage where it's almost like the seniors and juniors who are coaching the freshmen. And that's what I heard time and again from those players. Like a lot of them don't even remember hearing Gino yell at them. It was always about a freshman looking up to Sue Bird and it was about it was about pleasing Sue Bird more than it was about the coaches. And so for both Ariema and Calipari, the the point I look at is like, it's almost more challenging to get a lot of talent who have other goals and who have future endeavors that they want to pursue and, and, and dominating the ball and, and scoring points is going to get them closer to that goal. And yet somehow you've shaped them to work together and pursue the goal that the whole team is going after. That That is a kind of talent that a lot of coaches don't have. Okay, Hang Up and Listen is a part of the Panoply Podcast Network. Now here's a word from one of our sister podcasts. Hi, I'm James Ledbetter of Inc. Magazine and Inc.com. I would like you to listen to our podcast, Inc. Uncensored, in which my colleagues and I talk about business and startups and entrepreneurship and technology and cool companies and, frankly, just about anything we want to. For example, this week, executive editor John Fine talked about... An excellent primer to Indie Rock Economics circa 2015, as described by the long-running band Deerhoof. Editor-at-large, Kimberly Weisel. Core Power Yoga. Get ready for the Starbucks of yoga. And staff writer, Will Yakowitz. Two companies, Taser and VView, that are making body cameras for police. They are trying to sow the seeds of trust between police and public or just trying to make some bucks. Download us at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Thanks. Thanks. 
the Women's World Cup is starting up in Canada in a couple of months, and Stefan Fatsis has his tickets. I do. <laughs> he can confirm that with a simple oh. I do. Uh, the U.S. Women's National Team won the Algarve Cup tournament in Portugal earlier this month, beating France 2-0 in the final with goals from Julie Johnston and Kristen Press, neither of whom have played in a World Cup or an Olympics. Uh, the roster, though, is still full of names you'll recognize if you've watched this team in major competitions over the last decade. Uh, Shannon Box, Allie Krieger, Carly Lloyd, Alex Morgan, Christy Rampone, who'll turn uh, 40 during the World Cup, Megan Rapino, Hope Solo, and Abby Wambach. Um, Kate, you just talked about kind of the older players leading the younger ones on basketball teams. I'm not sure that that's quite the <laughs> dynamic we have on the women's national team. Uh, Hope Solo is not quite leading by example. She was charged with domestic violence against her half-sister and nephew in 2014. The charges were dismissed in January when both of the alleged victims failed to cooperate with police. Uh, then her husband, Jeremy Stevens, who has the world's longest rap sheet, uh, was charged with DUI while driving a U.S. soccer van. Solo was suspended from the national team for a month. She was uh, in the van. She was in the van. She was mm. uh, She was in the van. She was there. Um <laughs> And not trying to go for some equivalency of behavior here, but Abby Wambach um, has uh, decided not to play for a club team this season, something her teammates have been required to do, um, raising questions about whether she's the beneficiary of a double standard. Um, I wrote, TEAM IN TURMOIL, in all caps. (laughs) I don't know if that's a fair characterization or not. But what is the dynamic on this team, Uh, Kate? What do we know about about what's going on with them? I think... From the outside, for the casual fan, they would be shocked to hear that some people would consider whether or not Abby Wambach should make this World Cup roster or whether for sure she should be in the starting lineup because these are the names that we've associated with the women's national team for so long. But those diehard fans and certain women's soccer aficionados feel, as I talk to them, like the women's national team has not necessarily fit its style around the young talent it has. And the women's national team does not use the NWSL as a proving ground, where if somebody has a great club form, let's give them a shot on the women's national team. They seem very dedicated to making the pieces that have long been bright stars for them. They want to retrofit those players so that they make sure they're still in the World Cup roster, even if maybe there are younger players who are showing talent. And I think that's a concern for a lot of fans that U.S. Women's National Team is no longer the best team in the world. I mean, not just rankings-wise, with with Germany holding the top spot um, at various times this year, but that the Women's National Team is not actually pursuing greatness in in its purest form, where you're like, you're looking at all your talent and you want to fit it to how, you know, your form and how you can play. But rather, it's like, here are these pieces over here that we have to get in. And then how can we best play? Right. And I think that the U.S. Women's National Team on some level is stuck in the 90s and 2000s mentality, which was we need to make this team part of the social conversation. It's really important for this group of athletes because they represent so much and 
were so likable, the Mia Hamm, Julie Foudy, Brandy Chastain group, that that mentality has persisted into an era when the competition is much higher, as you mentioned. The U.S. is not necessarily automatically the best team in the world. The style of play of the older players does not match up well with the younger, fitter, faster, more skilled on the ball sort of play that I think the the women coming out of college and in their mid-20s on this team exhibit. And I think there's also a personality issue. The, the I, You know, you've reported, you wrote a lovely profile for ESPN last year about Abby Wambach. Um, you've talked to more of these women than I have, but as a as, as a sort of educated journalist observer, my feeling is that, yeah, there definitely is a sort of a cabal of older players on this team who have managed to control the message and control the roster to some degree. I mean, I think that there's ample evidence that the players had a role in pushing out Tom Sermani last year as the head coach after a very short stay. Um, and I think there's also evidence based on the fact that Abby's still playing. You know, Christy Rampone still looks pretty good, actually, in, mm-hmm. in, in central defense. Um, but Abby is still out there. And, you know, in the, in the friendlies I've watched, she's not looked sort of super impressive or fit or able to keep up um, physically with, 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 with her teammates. So there is this impression left that they're sort of strong-arming their way back into another World Cup. Yeah, and the part that I balk against is the backlash that – Abby has received Mm -hmm. as if because she has decided not to play the club season and and part of that is being a newlywed and and I'm sure wanting to train in Portland with her wife as opposed to being in some random condo in in Buffalo. I get that. Um, I'm playing on a very lousy field, by the way, in Rochester, a turf field that's a disaster. And and, and for a team that has clearly built itself to – that to not optimize the specific skill set she brings, which at this point is sort of like to be, you know, a sharpshooter, to use a basketball metaphor, and coming in as like a sub. I mean, that's what I would see her best use at uh, on the on the World Cup level. Um, but the backlash she's receiving is if, you know, she's entitled. And I would just, I think you should pull back, these fans who are mad at her should pull back and be like, why has the women's national team allowed and enabled this type of behavior from from Abby, if if you want to say that you know they haven't that that this that you're not agreeing with her decision to not play on the club level, I mean they have enabled a lot of these players because these are the players who put fans in the seats, and I think that's a tough balancing act for the women's national team in U.S. soccer. Is like we've got a bunch of these players who that's who fans are paying to see, but maybe if we look at the actual skill level and the and and the youth talent, maybe they're not the best roster fits, but how do we balance that? Because we certainly want, people are paying to see Abby, they're paying to see Hope, they're, they're, they're paying to see Carly Lloyd, who also is very, very fit. So I think that, I think the, I, I worry about U.S. soccer and how it has enabled some of this behavior. And ironically, this is what this generation of players called out the previous generation for like hey the game has evolved and you don't you know you don't get it anymore well ironically that's kind of the space they find themselves as they age out too what yeah. a shock <laughs> we all... history repeating itself i'm shocked yeah so one kind of observation and one question for you stefan i mean we don't want to get into the situation of just comparing men and women just uh, at, at every at every step when we talk about women's sports but it is hard not to think of landon donovan here and how just kind of unsentimental 
Jurgen Klinsmann and the U.S. men's soccer apparatus was about this um, and leaving him off the World Cup roster and seemingly not caring at all about his feelings or the other players' feelings and wanting to bring in younger players, maybe thinking it was because a younger player would give them a better roster in Brazil and maybe thinking just like, we don't need this prima donna on our team who's like not training with us and who's taking a sabbatical because he doesn't feel good or, you know, just being completely un- unsympathetic to, you know, Donovan's particular journey and plate or whatever you want to term it. Um, and then on the question of fans wanting to see Abby and Alex Morgan and Hope Solo and the other famous players, like, do you think, Stefan, that your daughter would be disappointed if Wambach wasn't on the roster, I kind of feel like you just get to love the next generation of players. I don't think my daughter would care at all. I think my daughter's more concerned that we have tickets for the second and third rounds and we might not get to see the U.S. if they don't win the group. <laughs> um, you know, I think, and she's also been brainwashed by me to not like Abby Wambach very much, but that's a separate story. Um but in terms of comparing, um, I think we do that. You know, we want women's sports to reflect a sort of a degree of a level of professionalism that, that, that the men enjoy. You know, you can't fathom a top player saying, I'm taking the club season off, but, you know, put me on the World Cup roster. That just would not happen. Does it matter in women's sports as much? I don't know. I mean, maybe Abby Wambach, if I felt that she were a player that was indispensable to the U.S. team's chances of winning the World Cup, you could say, well, look, they play on a lousy field. Um, They're only playing three games before the World Cup starts anyway. Um, She's 35 and needs sort of a special level of training to prepare for this. What's our priority as a national federation? It is to win the World Cup. Um, Yes, we are contributing financially to this new women's professional league, but we're still an event-driven organization, a big event-driven organization. And what's really important is for us to feel the best team possible for that. Having said that, look, there are ways to accommodate here. You know, if it was really important to U.S. soccer that the NWSL were had Abby Wambach in it for the first couple months of the season, well, maybe they could have put her on Portland, negotiate a trade, find a way so that she's training on an acceptable field with players that she wants in an environment that she's that she's comfortable with, with her personal trainer, whatever. But that obviously didn't happen here. So double standard or not double standard, Kate? Does that matter in, in this? in this in this sphere i think it's i do think it's a double standard within the women's national team world within women's soccer i can see how mm-hmm. if i'm a young player or if i'm a 25 year old who was playing at byron munich's women's club or over in france like some of these players were being asked to come back and kind of being given an ultimatum that all world cup pool players need to be in the nwsl this year and then seeing abby opt out of her NWSL season would certainly be a double standard. To me, I'd think, okay, well, why does Abby feel like she's in a position where she can do that, and yet I had to give up more money playing for Bayern Munich to come back and play in the NWSL? Within women's sports, I I can see the double standard. Now, comparing it to Landon or comparing it on the men's side, how a lot of people asked, would any male player be eligible for the World Cup if, if he decided not to play for his club team. I don't think that's the comparison because not all things are equal. You know, it, it's if, if a male player is going to pass up his club team, first of all, that would never happen because of the amount of money they're making. Right. Abby's passing up maybe, I don't even know exactly what it is. I know the average for the NWSL, generally speaking, is like $20,000. I'm sure Abby's making a little more. But not enough money for her to say, 
I want to be in Buffalo and I need it and it's it, it's worth it to me to be there versus Portland in my home and, and with my wife. So the double standard it, for me is within women's sports and why the U.S. soccer team has enabled some of its older players to make these decisions. Well, and I'm also surprised that there might not be some internal blowback to Abby doing this. Uh, in the conversations I've had with Anson Dorrance over the years at North Carolina, the head coach of the soccer team there, one of the things he's emphasized with me is that in order for a women's team to be successful, all of the women really need to get along. There can't be any sort of um, distrust um, among the group. Those things are important, in some ways more important, he believes, than on a men's team. And I can't see how Abby saying, you know what, I'm out of here for three months to get ready for the World Cup wouldn't engender some resentment. I absolutely think it would, although I'll push, I'll push back a little bit. I mean, this team has had turmoil basically since the early 2000s, since that 99 World Cup team. Now, they haven't won another World Cup, but they've won a lot of Olympic gold medals. Most of the players on that team don't love Hope Solo, right? There are certainly some who have her back, but there are others who have consistently felt like she's been a difficult teammate. And they've still managed to win Olympic gold. So I'm not sure a women's team needs to get along. And they could have won by more if they got along. <laughs> certain, it could be oh, like UConn. <laughs> exactly. I want to see some 25 to 1 score lines. But, but this seems kind of like an inflection point, right? Like this, um, it, it doesn't seem like a lot of these players will be around in the 2019 World Cup. Although maybe the 2016 the Olympics, Olympics Wambach has mm-hmm. talked about wanting to play there. So this could linger on for another year, right? But then after that, it seems like the new generation will kind of take over. Yeah. And I'll add one one more thing. Most of the women's soccer insiders and people I've spoken to were frustrated by one thing when it came to Abby, which was a quote she offered about why, and which was to prepare for the World Cup. And uh, everybody to a person was like, if she had only said to prepare to try and make the World Cup roster, they all probably would have granted her a a little more empathy with this decision. But the presumption that she's going to be on the roster frustrated a lot of people. And it reflected the notion that this World Cup roster for certain players isn't a competition. It's It's a fait accompli. Yes. All right. In April 2013, a basketball player, Jason Collins, came out on the cover of Sports Illustrated saying, I didn't set out to be the first openly gay athlete playing in a major American team sport. But since I am, I'm happy to start the conversation. Now, almost two years later, it still feels like the conversation is stuck in the opening sentence in a lot of ways. Uh, Michael Sam, the first openly gay player drafted by an NFL team, never got the chance to play in a regular season game, participated in the league's first veterans combine last week, hoping uh, that someone will sign him to a roster. Afterwards, he said, I'm not the only gay person in the NFL. I'm just saying there is a lot of us. I respect the players that did reach out to me and had the courage to tell me that they were also gay, but they do not have the same courage as I do to come out before I even played a down in the NFL. Uh, Kate, your memoir, The Reappearing Act, has the subtitle Coming Out as Gay on a College Basketball Team Led by Born Again Christians. So uh, you can appreciate the challenge for someone in Michael Sam's position as well, presumably, as that of the gay players in the NFL or any other league who haven't come out publicly. Uh, So where do you feel like we are two years after that uh, Sports Illustrated cover? I do think we've stalled a little bit. Maybe not with the conversation that media is having and presumably people, fans are having, but in terms of athletes 
feeling comfortable to come out, I think we've stalled. And part of the reason we've stalled is because Michael Sam didn't make an NFL roster. And he's in a position now where he's on Dancing with the Stars, and there's this question of whether, had he not come out, would he have made a roster? And I think that's a valid question to ask. And I've always looked at gay, let's just talk about gay male athletes. I've always looked at it as there's a a heavy, heavy burden for in the NFL for Michael Sam to come out first. It's like the equivalent of like carrying a boulder, you know, a, a, a long distance. At first, it's a really heavy burden because everybody wants your input on every sort of discussion that happens in sports when, when it dovetails with sexuality or gender. They want to talk to you and they're in your locker room and we saw how much of an issue it became for him and subsequently his NFL team. So that boulder was really heavy. And I think a lot a lot of other players who maybe identify as gay looked at him and they could have said, all right, I'm going to split that weight with him, but it's still going to be really heavy. Or I just, I don't want to deal with that. I want to focus on my NFL career. And I think that's where we still are. Now, at some point, we're going to reach a tipping point where Another player comes out and then a third and then a fourth and the burden's not heavy anymore and it's no longer going to be a factor in guys' decisions because it's just going to be, you know, it's going to be such a lighter weight. But we're not there yet. And the fact that Michael Sam didn't make an NFL roster, I think absolutely is going to keep um, an, a senior right now uh, who is in the NFL draft from making the same decision. And certainly there there probably is one. So I think we've stalled, and I am concerned a little bit about where we are if you just look at the NFL, because I don't know who that next player is going to be that's going to share that burden with burden with Michael Sam. Yeah, I think we kind of misjudged the tipping point, or maybe there was some wishful thinking there, because with Jason Collins and Michael Sam, and then you had um, Derek Gordon at UMass, the basketball player, and... Robbie Rogers, the soccer player, it did seem like the boulder was kind of rolling downhill to extend that metaphor. Um, and there were also reports, right, that there was a group of players in the NFL that was going to come out collectively, again, to kind of lighten that burden on any individual player. And that really hasn't happened. And Stefan, you can't avoid thinking when something doesn't happen, what is preventing it from happening. And um, it seems like you're right, Kate, that, um, you know, Michael Sam not making a roster, that would certainly make you think twice. It's climate, isn't it? It's sort of what you feel comfortable doing. I mean, this is obviously, as you write about in your memoir, Kate, this is an incredibly difficult and personal um, decision, um, whom you can trust, when you can trust them. I mean, Michael Sam's story was so uplifting because everyone at the University of Missouri had his back. His teammates were there. His coaches were there. The athletic department was there. Um, we haven't seen that demonstration of commitment from a professional sports organization, at least in the NFL. We saw it in the NBA when Jason Collins briefly played after after coming out when he when he when he was signed by the Nets. But we certainly haven't seen that level of genuine commitment in the NFL. There have been statements of support, certainly, but every it, statement it, of support seems to have two anonymous scouts saying behind. Right. Everyone's back that, you know, it's a distraction and, oh, he's really not that good at football and 
And look, hey, St. Louis let him go. He couldn't have been that good. Um, And oh, look, he couldn't even break five at the veterans combine. No one's going to sign him now. So, you know, absent. Little undermining. Little bit of undermining. And I would add that I've had a lot of conversations with Wade Davis, who's the executive director of the You Can Play Project, Mm -hmm. about whether Michael Sam is not in the NFL because he's gay. And Wade, who's always very level-headed about this stuff, was like, look, it's it's a constant balance with NFL teams and management, you know, and he would make – Wade would make his hands like a scale, like distraction. And, and I hate that word, but it, that's what the NFL teams think of it as versus talent. And, you know, at one point, Terrell Owens, like, he was a huge distraction, but his talent level was so extreme that when you put those two things on a scale – it still made sense for a team to sign him. And Wade was like, the bottom line is that with Michael Sam, when those teams weigh the quote-unquote distraction versus the talent level, it's not an equation that they feel is going to work out in their favor. And I think the tough part is that had Michael Sam been – an NFL superstar who came out or the top 10 draft pick where it was undeniable, we might have seen a different ramifications for how the players felt. And those comments that Sam made in Dallas last week, I mean, he talked about players reaching out to him and discussing their sexual orientation and how much it meant, but I'll never mention who they are. The message is they're there, but they're still uncomfortable having this conversation publicly for whatever reason, because of a coach, because of teammates, because of front office, because of the league generally. Well, like what you're saying with the equation, Kate, a lot of it feels like gaslighting to me, like the league executives and scouts like make you think that you're crazy for thinking this guy ever had a chance to play in the NFL. It's like he was the SEC, you know, defensive player of the year. He did have all those sacks in the preseason. And then when you read the anonymous quotes, they're like, this is the worst player like I've ever seen in my life. Like he can't run. He's so, you know, weak and how, you know, he should be grateful that we ever gave him the chance. And you're not inclined as a fan or a viewer to give the league the benefit of the doubt, given the history of how the NFL has, you know, treated gay players or, you know, gay rhetoric or anything to do with homosexuality. And so, It's just hard to believe anything that people are saying, even if it happens to be true. But is this an NFL-specific conversation, (laughs) Josh? And and I'll ask you the question, Kate, because with Derek Gordon at UMass, he specifically has said, everyone's been awesome. Fans have been great. Teammates were great. Coaches were great. I'm not transferring because of anything having to do with my sexual orientation or my having come out. That's progress. That's a good thing. Right. I I think when I think about what these guys specifically are going through. Sometimes I feel as if people aren't giving enough weight to all the directions that they're pulled in. I know with Derek specifically, he kind of became more of like a pseudo celebrity overnight than his basketball career had ever um, allowed him to become. And I think for him, that meant, okay, how many, like, pride parades do I agree to attend? And, you know, he was at the GLAAD Awards. And we see this with Michael Sam all the time. And it's like this level of distraction that has entered your life where this whole subsection group of people 
now want to pull you in a bunch of different directions and you're equally wanting to maintain your focus in the place that has elevated you to have the platform anyway. And this is a rough comparison, but we, we kind of saw it with Ellen like 15 years ago when she came out on her show. There was a few years there where she was felt like she had to be the ambassador for everything and it was a tough burden to carry. And then she kind of found her sweet spot and was able to create a space for herself where she certainly talks about these issues now, but she's not defined by it. And we're just not there yet in sports. Um, we are in a more so in entertainment, but in sports, it's still the defining characteristic for, for Derek and for Michael and for, in a lot of ways for Jason. And I think that scares all of yeah. the closeted players that all of a sudden they are going to be defined by it. Well, we're there more with women's sports, right? Like we talked about Abby Wambach in the last segment and wanting to be near her wife. And that's just like kind of a statement of fact and not anything that we had to focus on in that mm -hmm. segment. Right. So where do you think, uh, we are in terms of um, women's sports. You mentioned in your book that you still feel like there's um, uh, issues with accepting coaches, right? Absolutely. I think at the college level, because of who the gatekeepers are, you know, we're talking about athletic directors who are predominantly white and predominantly male are still the gatekeepers for hiring coaches. And so coaches feel female coaches in, in and I'm speaking specifically in college basketball, but I do believe this applies to softball and soccer and a lot of sports. They're not worried about what fans think. They're worried about what athletic directors think. And they used to be worried about how it would affect them in recruiting, of course. But I think that worry is lessened. But the gatekeepers, you know, I always say like the gatekeepers in like, let's say Broadway, where a lot of people make this assumption like, oh, there are a lot of gay men in Broadway. You know, why does it not affect them the way female coaches are affected? And it's like, well, the gatekeepers in Broadway are often also gay men or people who have grown up in the theater and may have more progressive views. Whereas in college basketball and college sports, the gatekeepers are often sort of conservative, older men. And so that's still there's still there as of right now, there are no openly gay female college basketball coaches. Wasn't there one? That's wasn't astounding. She, wasn't it? Cher, she was Cher, fired. She was fired. Cherry Morell yeah. at Portland yeah. State. Right. So it's like there's still issues in women's sports. They're very different than the ones that apply to men's sports and, and female athletes. I think there's still hundreds and hundreds of closeted female athletes. Um, but we've made progress, if you think it's progress, and I do, with female athletes feeling like they can come forward, as we've seen with Brittany right. Griner we're, we're, and less we're, so. We're, yeah. we're, we're far from the Renee Portland, Penn State. Yes. There are going to be no lesbians on my team era. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's uh, move on to our afterballs. And Stefan, we haven't had the opportunity yet to talk about the Cricket World Cup, which... Oh, we um, need to follow up on the Cricket World Cup, Josh. We do. Australia beat New Zealand in the final. And the man that we're going to honor today... Mm -hmm is AHM Mustafa Kamal, the president of ICC, the Cricket International Federation. Cricket Council. Not Federation, yeah. Josh. It's a council. <laughs> the Cricket Council, who was very upset after the final because he did not uh, give the trophy. He was supposed to give the trophy, but somebody else gave the trophy, the ICC chairman, not the president. And he said, I was supposed to give the trophy today. It is my constitutional right but very unfortunately, I wasn't allowed to do so. so My so rights were dishonored, <laughs> Josh. Keep going with the quotation. Don't short sell this. This is a big issue in cricket. 
after I go back home, I will let the whole world know what's happening in ICC. I will let the whole world know about those guys who are doing these mischievous things, some sportocrat on sportocrat action. (laughs) (laughs) I love some good sportocrat on sportocrat action. So, Mr. Kamal, if there's ever a hang up and listen cricket, cricket tournament, you'll be giving the trophy. Promise. It's in our constitution. Stefan, why don't you go first this week? What is your AHM Mustafa Kamal? Well, between NCAA basketball games last week, I channel changed onto a women's college lacrosse game on ESPNU. Michigan was playing your alma mater, Kate, Colorado. Close game, very fast paced. The ball was whipping around the field, and all of the players were wearing skirts. I don't know why this surprised me, maybe because I don't watch much women's lacrosse these days, but it did. In the battle between skirts and shorts in women's sports, I figured shorts had finally won for good. When I pointed this out uh, to my 12-year-old daughter, who's just started playing field hockey, the other skirt-heavy women's sports, she said, it seems kind of sexist, doesn't it? Good point, right? Uh, The sartorial feminization of female athletes is uh, deeply rooted in history. In the late 19th century, corsets and long skirts were de rigueur in the few sports deemed acceptable for women, like croquet, tennis, archery. Women started playing basketball in 1892, a year after James Naismith invented the sport, and they did so encased in floor-length dresses. Progress came quickly in 1896. Women's basketball pioneer Claret Gregory Bear at Sophie Newcomb College in New Orleans outfitted her players in bloomers. My grandmother went there. Newcomb. Bloomers. Salute. Salute. Salute Newcomb. Became part of Tulane. Bloomers eventually gave way to blousy pleated knee-length skirts. Players in the All-American Girls Baseball League of the 1940s and 50s, the league of their own league, they wore skirts. At women's college basketball powerhouse Immaculata College, players wore just above the knee blue wool tunics with box (laughs) pleats and bloomers into the 1970s before switching to skirts for a couple of years and finally shorts. There were a few rebels along the way like Helen Jacobs who wore man-tailored shorts at Wimbledon in 1933, but they were rare and vilified for their brazenness. (laughs) (laughs) Skirt wearing was the norm for so long because of the patriarchal idea that if women were to play sports at all, they should retain the appearance of femininity. That notion began withering with the passage of Title IX in 1972, but the skirt endured, if not in basketball and gym class, then in the minds of our friends, the Olympic sportocrats, who in 2012 wanted to institute a skirts-only policy for women's boxing and badminton. The boxing suit said that the skirts would distinguish the women from the men The badminton people said it would give a stylish presentation to the players. Now, there are pro-skirt arguments that have nothing to do with the sexualization of women athletes and, in fact, intend a desexualization of women athletes. A high school girls track team here in Washington started wearing skirts a few years ago because the athletes felt spandex shorts were too revealing. Some volleyball teams have switched for similar reasons. Some women say skirts are more comfortable. At the University of North Carolina, the women's lacrosse team switched to shorts in 2002 and reached the final. Final four, but the players switched back to skirts, the head coach told Lacrosse Magazine, because they didn't like how they looked in shorts. But I'm with those who say skirts serve no purpose other than to tell the audience that girls or women are playing. Like the head lacrosse coach at Northwestern, Kelly Amante Hiller, who imposed a switch from skirts to shorts in 2008 on grounds that wearing shorts would make the sport more credible and its players more respected and tougher. In shorts, one of her players said, you kind of get the mentality, you feel a little more badass, and you start to appreciate that it's not about how you look, only how you feel. 
Still, skirts remain the norm in lacrosse and field hockey, and they aren't the only tradition in women's sports dying a slow death. At the University of Tennessee, fans and players are protesting a decision to drop Lady from Lady Vols, the nickname of all teams, except in basketball. The decision is less about progressive nicknaming than about Nike and branding, but it's a step in the right direction. After all, Merriam-Webster's online collegiate dictionary lists the first three definitions of lady as a woman who behaves in a polite way, a woman of high social position, and a man's girlfriend. (laughs) So no, I do not think women's sports teams should be known as ladies. The editors of the student newspaper at the University of Delaware don't think so either. Last semester, the paper announced in an editorial that it would no longer refer to women's teams as the Lady Hens. It noted that Lady Hens is redundant, but more important, that calling the women's teams something other than just hens, quote, suggests that men's teams lay claim to true henship and to the true embodiment of athleticism by categorizing our women's teams as other, we diminish the tremendous achievements of our women's sports. Here, here. The editors noted that the move was prompted by a letter from a recent graduate that the paper had printed. That letter was illustrated with a photo of the field hockey team. They were wearing skirts. I think they should call the male teams the male hens. I think that would be uh, the, the best compromise. <laughs> the whole thing makes no sense. Kate, I was actually just reading about the Louisiana Tech women's basketball team in the early days. This was like one of the storied programs in women's basketball. And the coach. Yeah, Kim Mulkey played there. The original coach was this woman, Sonia Hogg, and she made all of her players wear sleeved jerseys and said that they they were called the lady texters and they had to act like ladies. And she was like very concerned with them behaving appropriately for women and looking appropriate and not, you know, <laughs> not sweating and, uh, or showing not in their... any way appearing gay. Not in any way well. appearing gay. Correct. <laughs> yeah. that, 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 that's for sure in women's sports. And, and funny thing now, those sleeve jerseys are like all the rage. <laughs> yeah, they've come back. Every, you know, fashion from the 70s, it always comes back. The lady nicks. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Kate, what's your AHM Mustafa Kamal? I'm a big believer that we don't watch sports necessarily for high-flying dunks and always for athleticism, although those things are so fun to watch. But really why we watch sports is for stakes and storylines. And so when people say that they don't watch women's sports because it's boring and the game's not as good as the men's game, I always balk at that because I say, no, you watch sports when you understand the stakes and when you understand the storylines. And we don't have that enough in women's sports because the media, mainstream media, mainstream sports media covers women's sports at a 4% clip. That means 96% of what we say in sports media and on TV and in our column inches is about men. 4% is about women. Now on the various times when the stakes and the storylines for a women's, women's sporting event have been disseminated properly to the public, the ratings and the interest are through the roof, right? So we have 2011, the Women's World Cup final between Japan and our U.S. women's national team was at that moment the most tweeted about event in Twitter history, more so even than the assassination of Osama bin Laden. And that final on ESPN had 13.5 million people who watched it. Then fast forward to the Sochi Olympics last year, women's hockey is a thing that you would never say that people would know a lot about or be interested in. But all of a sudden, people understand the stakes between U.S. and Canada and the gold medal final. And we've introduced them to the storylines of some of those participants, like Hillary Knight, who was recently in the ESPN body issue. That was a ratings bonanza. People loved it. So 
I guess my point here is that next time you say that you don't watch women's sports because, quote unquote, the game is inferior, that's not actually true. You're not watching women's sports because our media has not always taken the time to introduce you to the players and the participants. So in that spirit, I'm going to introduce you to some of the storylines that are still left in this women's NCAA basketball championship. Of course, we all know the UConn storyline, and that's the one that everybody points to. And we say, well, we all know UConn, but we don't know anything else. Well, here are some other things you can know, right? You got Tennessee, who legendary coach Pat Summit had to step down because of her Alzheimer's diagnosis. And now Holly Warlick is the head coach. That Tennessee team, which will be playing Maryland for a right to go to the Final Four, the seniors on that team are the last players to have played with Pat Summit, and they are carrying a pretty heavy burden. I know I've spoken with some of them who really take a lot of responsibility that they want the last recruited class for Pat Summit to make a mark on women's college basketball. You got Maryland. Brenda Freeze is the coach there. She has two sons who were diagnosed with leukemia and who are in remission. And those two sons and, and her husband sit behind the bench. They're at every practice. They are a staple with that program. South Carolina is already in the Final Four. Dawn Staley is the head coach. We all know her story. Olympic gold medalist. She's from Philly. Used to coach at Temple, but her assistant coach, Nikki McCray, was also an Olympian, was diagnosed with breast cancer last year and is in remission. And she's a great story, the way she battled that and how courageous she's been and also becoming a spokesperson. We got Notre Dame. We kind of know that storyline. Muffet McGraw. Jewel Lloyd, as well, is one of the best players in women's college basketball. Take a minute and watch her game because she's very different than Brianna Stewart, although both of them are extremely effective. But Jewel Lloyd... As a point guard, makes amazing passes. And even when she's struggling, you can see the way she breaks down the defense. It's fun to watch. And then the team playing UConn, Dayton, the number seven seed. I don't know that they're going to be able to beat UConn, but Jim Jaber was my coach at Colorado. He's an assistant for one year there. He's the head coach of Dayton. He also, a few years ago, was very, very sick, and it was touch and go for a while. And he was able to bounce back and have this Dayton program beat Two Kentucky teams, Louisville and then Kentucky, in a row and be a Cinderella, which we say almost never happens in women's college sports. So stakes and storylines, there they are for you. Um, and with Tennessee, you mentioned the comeback that they had against Gonzaga in the Sweet 16. There was a kind of desperation and fury to that, where I guess if you don't understand the burden that you're talking about that they carry with you know, being Pat Summit's last team, um, then maybe you don't understand how yeah. amazing and... It just seemed, like I said, desperate. Like the players just seem like that, you know, it's a cliche, but they really did refuse to lose. They were down by 17 with maybe six minutes to go. It was crazy, like how they managed to just the force themselves in back into that game. They played, yeah. And, and so many of them, I did a story with them a couple of years ago. You wouldn't believe how much they take to heart having been the last team coached by Pat Summit. Like that legacy for them is so important. All right, Josh, what's your AHM Mustafa Kamal? I hope you've enjoyed getting to introduce all the afterballs today. I know. This is a treat It was fun for, for you. Yeah, it was. I usually only get to introduce Josh. Um, all right, I've uh, got uh, a sequel to my not particularly beloved uh, Vern Lundquist making lots of mistakes afterball. So a couple of years ago, I did one. Uh, I cataloged 36 errors that he made during an Alabama-Texas A&M football game. And since nobody listens to me, it is now time for me to repeat myself. And I do this out of sorrow rather than anger because I like Vern Lundquist. He has a great voice. He seems like maybe the nicest man who's ever lived. 
He called some of the most memorable moments in sports history Jack Nicklaus's putt at the 86 Masters. Yes, sir. Uh, Christian Leitner's shot to beat Kentucky. Um, but Vern, who's 74 years old and called his 31st NCAA tournament in 2015, should not be calling big-time sporting events at this stage. I've watched a bunch of the games he did this year, and it's just painful as a fan of his, but also as a fan who wants to understand what is happening in a game that I'm watching. Um, One of the weirdest endings in this year's tournament came in UCLA's win over SMU. Time dwindling, Bruins down by two, Bryce Alford hoists a three-pointer. It's off target. SMU, though, they tip the ball. It's called for goaltending, giving UCLA a one-point lead. Um, Here's what viewers heard from Vern Lundquist and his broadcast partners, Jim Spinarkel, after the refs called goaltending. I think they've reversed the call. We have not been told. Let's see. This ball comes off. They have not reversed it yet. The question becomes whether Marrera touches this ball right there as it's coming down. But we're back in play, and they got to go in a hurry to the basket. Ball stands. Five seconds to go. More. Front edge. Off the floor. Oh, he missed it. Okay, so to recap what we just heard, Lundquist misled viewers into thinking the game's most important call had been reversed, then missed the fact that the final play of the game was underway. Oof. (laughs) Yikes, indeed. All right, moving on. Here is a clip of Vern after Louisville's Sweet 16 win over NC State describing what Louisville's Terry Rozier is doing immediately after his team's victory again with Jim Spinarkel chiming in. Dookie. Allie, thank you. Here's a little touch of class. Terry Rozier, he's speaking, I believe, yes it is, the North Carolina State radio broadcast team. How about that? Beautiful. Good touch. Now, Bob Valvano is one of the broadcasters for... I'm sorry. Louisville. What am I thinking about? <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it just makes it so awkward for the listener. It does. And in Sunday's uh, Elite Eight game, I kept track of Fern's mistakes and felt bad about doing it, but I counted a total of 27 by the end of Michigan State's overtime win over Louisville. And I'm not going to enumerate all of them because it feels mean. Um, but Vern did misidentify which player lost the ball or blocked a shot seven different times. Um, he didn't catch the fact that the clock stopped running for 30 seconds uh, early in the game. He didn't know the rule that the clock only does start when a player touches the ball after an in- inbounds pass. And so he thought that the clock was broken again. Um, he called Dylan Avar for Louisville, Avar Dylan. That was awesome. He gave the wrong final score for the UConn-Texas women's game and on and on and on. Um, I recognize the calling of these games is a very hard job. This show is edited. We make uh, mistakes all the time, <laughs> all the damn time. Um, but Jim Nance, for all his faults, I'm not a, fan, a big fan of his, but I'm not, I'm not any kind of fan of his. But um, he made just one mistake that I counted calling the Duke and Zaga game. He said a foul was on the wrong player, but then he corrected himself after the commercial break. I mean, the guy is good. Like, he doesn't make mistakes. He's a pro. Um, And Lundquist, calling a game of the same magnitude, same network, made 27 times as many errors. Um, 
take that 538. That's my, uh, that's my math of the week. Um, in an interview with Sports Illustrated last year, Vern uh, Lundquist said he would stay with CBS as long as coordinating producer of CBS Sports Craig Silver and CBS Sports chairman Sean McManus want him there. Um, I blame those guys. They're, Silver and McManus are not doing Vern Lundquist any favors. The man is a legend. It is time uh, for him to pass the mic to somebody else. Stefan. Dylan Avari think was fantastic. And the fact that this kid came in to shoot a free throw was also fantastic, which the announcers did not really bring up. He, he played was a, a total of 27 minutes in seven games all season and had scored three points. He was one for five from the field and one for two from the line. Yeah, they didn't tell us the storylines. Come Izzo, on, Vern. Izzo was kind of disgusted <laughs> when that went down. All right, we'd love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up Listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Hang Up and Listen. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And Panoply is looking for the next great podcast salesperson based in New York. If you're passionate about podcasts and you have digital sales experience, please send your resume to hiring at Panoply.fm. Thank you very much to Kate Fagan for filling in for Mike Pesca this week. And check out her podcast uh, on 538 Hot Takedown. You can get that on iTunes. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. And producing today's show is Audrey Quinn. Remember Zelma Beatty, and thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.